When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Conrad, I could not be any better. I'm a happy man. It's a beautiful day in Oklahoma. It's starting to cool off a little bit. Uh, still thinking about all the folks affected by the, uh, uh, the hurricane out there on the East Coast. A lot of my friends are affected by that. We wish them all the best. And, and certainly, as we record this today, uh, or actually record on Wednesday, but it's 9-11, and we should not ever forget where we were and what the significance of nine 11 is should always be to each and every one of us. And it should be a thing that should bring us all together and not uh, splinter the nation as we've seen on some hearings about insurance and things for those, uh, those poor bastards that paid the big severe price to save our, you know, keep our safety. So, uh, I think about those kind of things and I think about how lucky I am to have, uh, our po- podcast is killing it. I got you way back in your way back machine here, man. I took Ooh. you back 29 years to September 5th, 1990 at the Asheville civic center right there in North Carolina for clash of the champions 12. It was nicknamed mountain madness or fall brawl 90. Uh, this was, uh, something you probably haven't seen since it happened. Fair to say. Have, yes. Fair to say. I have never seen it. I've this, uh, watching it today. Sitting outside was, uh, the first time I laid eyes on that and I was going to skim and get to the, the meat that we're probably talking about today. But then as old wrestling fans do, I got stuck and I watched the whole damn card because there's things in each match that were good memories, you know, that were nostalgic and, uh, at, you know, and here in the late innings of life, I like nostalgia. So shame on me, but it was. It was fun to go back and watch. It's always fun to hear Bob Cottle's voice. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a an interesting show there in the little, little Asheville civic center. I always love the old clash of the champions. And I'm glad that of, uh, all the names that WWE could borrow for their pay-per-view these days, that clash of the champions made the cut because it was such a big part of wrestling for so long. What say you, Jim, are you for WWE using the name clash of the champions for pay-per-view? I kind of like it. Sure. Absolutely. They bought it. They bought the library. They bought the IP, the intellectual property. And I, you know, obviously the clash of champions and along with everything else on that massive umbrella would go along with the sale, but it keeps the brand alive. It keeps the name alive. And just like you Conrad, when you hear that name, it conjures up meaning uh, and memories of days gone by. And that's not always a bad thing. If those are good memories, we talked about bad memories on nine 11. Now we, you know, but memories are always going to be there. No, everybody's got memories of something. 
And, uh, man, uh, thinking about these classes, I remember driving up to Asheville. I remember what I was driving. Uh, I remember where, uh, when I saw the tape where I got the tie, which is a funny story behind that. I mean, it's just amazing. The, the, the flood flooding back of, uh, memories is heartwarming. Quite frankly, it's cool. It's really cool. Well, I mean, I gotta know, where'd you get the tie? Well, uh, Jim Barnett had gone to England and, uh, had, uh, uh, I signed, I was his, uh, superior, I wouldn't have superior. It's not a good word. He reported to me as the VP of broadcasting of WCW. And so he was on a, <clears throat> a, a sales mission, PR sales, so forth to get, uh, WCW on a better, uh, platform, broadcast platform in the, in England, in the UK, throughout the UK. So when he was, uh, uh, over there, uh, he was, had a propensity to go shopping and then figure out a way to get on his expense report. So <laughs> he goes to my office with a, a necktie box and, uh, you know, it had Harrods nice store there, high dollar, big time department store. And, uh, so he bought some neckties and, and, and masqueraded them as sandwiches because they were his lunch apparently. And I busted him <laughs> and, uh, he, he, we, we had a little minor come to Jesus and, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Well, hey, look, let me see what kind of, do you got anything to go with a blue suit? <laughs> 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 oh my, oh my, my God, I've got a, a burgundy tie that's got white in it. And he just goes, whole. he, now he goes into full blown, uh, you know, clothes designer mode. And, uh, it was just funny. So that, that tie, <clears throat> when I saw that tie, uh, watch rewatching the show, it, that came pop boom, right back to him. That was that tie that I got from Jim Barnett. That was in disguise as, you know, dessert at his lunch, at his lunch. So, uh, but I never, he said, you're not going to turn me in. Like it's going to go, yeah, Jim, this could be a hard time. You know, this is embezzlement and a foreign country could be federal. I love you for that. <laughs> I said, no, I said, we're good. As long as you got it, the, my, the tie looks good with my blue suit. So we're good. So, uh, that's the story of the little necktie. <laughs> we should mention that this show has about 4,000 fans in attendance. Of course it's live on TBS as all the clashes were, and it does a 5.0 rating, which means it was seen in 2.76 million homes. That's an 8.4 share. And that's we good. should mention that, uh, the pirates and Mets at the exact same time are having the highest rated major league baseball game on ESPN of the year. So up until this point, this is the most watched major league baseball game on ESPN, the pirates and Mets. So you guys are sort of head to head with it. As we said, the show gets a five, uh, the ball players got a four. Man, mm -hmm. if that doesn't speak to the strength of wrestling, 90 is really a down year for the NWA and WCW, but couldn't tell you guys that here. I mean, you're out drawing major league baseball. That's uh, quite the feather in the cap. Is it not? Yeah, it is. And it speaks well to the uh, brand, uh, the, the game, the business, uh, and, and TVS TNT, the Turner family seems to have always had a knack for reaching a wrestling fan, either, you know, they had smart lead ins or, or lead outs. And the only thing we've ever had an issues, we ever had issues there with were the preemptions due to the Braves. And, uh, that couldn't be helped as it were, it were, it, 
that's the one thing Jim Hurd did a, a decent job of because he could be just such a giant pain in the ass that he would get on the TBS people about, you know, you're, you're screwing up our episodic television. We, we produce episodic TV here. Right. If you watch occasionally, maybe you get that. And, uh, <clears throat> I told him one time, I said, you know, sometimes that's not too easy to see. I don't have, I have to, I don't have a clue what we're doing. Uh, but there was a very, uh, a tumultuous time to say the least in that, uh, in 1990, uh, you know, we only became the booker, which we can talk, <clears throat> we talk about, he produced the show as, as a matter of fact, I watched the show all the way through, as I mentioned, and I forgot that they put the, uh, they, they we got, we all got credits back in those days. And, uh, the producers are Keith Mitchell, who's now at AEW as their head of production and yours truly. And of course the head honcho was Jim Hurd. I, I do want to ask, what, what do you think about, uh, credits in wrestling? I've always kind of liked that idea. I, I know that a lot of people think it's weird. And of course, WWE hasn't done it in a long, long time. They did once upon a time, but these days the show just goes off the air with a little copyright or signature notice at the end. Uh, and, and that's it. But the station or not the station, but the, the traditional credits rolling at the end of the show, I think is kind of cool. It adds, uh, I don't know, some legitimacy to it. What do you think? Yeah. I like the, the, anything that adds legitimacy to what we do is a good thing. Uh, I know for my take on it is, is that when Watts, uh, started doing credits, he only did them for a few people. And, uh, basically it was a way that the booker owner, promoter, whatever, uh, could continue to exercise their muscle over everybody around them, uh, on, from the ego side. So the bottom line is this, the cowboy bill Watts guys of the world did not want anybody to get confused as to how, uh, who's, who was responsible for the show. I'm the boss, I'm the guy. And so that's why a lot of that happened. But TBS looked at it as a television vehicle, right? And so consequently, uh, that they added the director, the cameraman, the grips, all that stuff. And I, here's the thing about that Conrad, I go back and I see names that I had not even thought of right. in, in so many years, it was really cool to see that who the cameramen were. And, oh, I remember she was a stage manager. He was this, or he was that it was great. So if you watch the show back. Hopefully they'll, they, I watched it on a, some streaming thing. I don't know what it was, uh, but check, stay tuned for the credits and you'll see some familiar names there from the wrestling world. Well, let's talk about, uh, the final two matches here, which uh, I watched on the WWE network and I'm sure this shows other places, but that's where I always watch these shows and the final two matches of this show are pretty big time, man. Your co-main event is Ric Flair and Lex Luger. And your main event is sting versus the black scorpion, which I can't wait for us to talk about, but they drew a 6.8 rating, which is 3.75 million homes, which Meltzer would say translates to over 8 million viewers and makes them the two most watched matches in the history of cable television. The old record was from the prior November at clash of the champions, New York knockout. Um, and that was a uh, flair and Terry funk there. I, I quit match. Yeah. Yeah. And they got 3.36 million here though. We're going to shatter it with 3.75, just huge man. 400,000 more homes. You know, the, this is a different type of wrestling company than you've ever worked for. 
McGurk wasn't a TV company. He was a promoter who had TV and Watts wasn't a TV company. He was a promoter who had TV. This is now a television company. So when these numbers come in, this has to be high fives all around the office, right? Yeah, it was pause for celebration. Certainly. Uh, some of my peers didn't realize the impact it had on the parent company, how positive it was. Uh, because they saw that we were in a small building in Asheville, one of the great cities on earth, by the way, if you've never been there folks. Uh, and we, Conrad mentioned earlier that the audience is about 4,000, right? But I think that, you know, I might be dead ass wrong here, but I believe that building only seats for wrestling, like five or six. Right. So it, it didn't look bad. It didn't sound bad, but it wasn't a sellout. Uh, and, but it, it, that was a big, that was a big win for us. Uh, and it kept a lot of the naysayers that still felt that pro wrestling on the, their network was below them. There are always a few of those guys hanging out. They've made sure that they knew the audience they were in before they, they spoke up by and large, but anybody that's knocking Andy Griffith, Sean Wayne movies, the Braves and wrestling. Uh, you can find yourself very well on the outs because everybody that was there knew that there were staples of the show, staples of the network that were keeping people tuned in from time to time, habitual viewing. So it was, a, it was a big, it was a good, it was a good win. Now, I, you know, I don't, we were so ostracized there in our office on the 12th floor there at the South tower. We would see people come by every now and then. I was in the backside of that office more often as where my office was. And so I didn't see where they came to the front desk, but you know, we were not, uh, the most visited division in the company, but I will say that our traffic increased after that rating that we got in Asheville. Well, part of that is probably because it's damn good commentary. I really enjoyed it. I'm not just kissing your ass. I think you and Bob Cottle, I wish I could have heard more of. Bob Cottle has such a classic wrestling voice. I don't know why, but I just associate his voice with professional wrestling and both of you guys together, man, this was like peanut butter and jelly as a fan. How was it as a performer? Uh, he's a beautiful man. He just really is. He's a, I I talked about Bob in my various broadcasts, audio shows in the past. He is just a sweetheart of a guy. And the thing about announcing, and you, you, you can tell guys this, and I have done that and, and done it recently. For any announcing combo or trio, whatever the hell you, you're, you're, you're working with, uh, to be good, you, we all have to listen to each other because it, sometimes it's a continuation of a thought uh, or a reaction to a thought, but it's a continuation to bring you to something so that you can create your own segue to get into your topic. But it's got to be seamless. It's got to be, you know, you got to listen. And, and a lot of announcers I've worked with don't listen. They're too worried about getting their stuff in and going and talking too long and saying the same thing two or three times. Uh, that's been an issue for years, but Bob listened and I listened to him more importantly, and we connected the dots. Uh, and so that's, that he was just a beautiful guy. He was never late. He never had an agenda. I don't know. If, I don't know if he ever read a dirt sheet in his life. Well, he could have been, you know, somebody's knocking that probably now in their mind. Well, how could he, how could it have been good? He called what he saw and he saw what he called simple. And we try to do it as realistically as we could and not overly insult your intelligence. Although I realize what we're broadcasting. So, uh, he was just great, uh, Conrad. He, 
I, I, he's still alive. He, he and his wife live in assisted living home. His wife, Jackie in Raleigh. He has two sons. They're both, both, uh, physicians. Uh, he's just, he had, he was a big star at WRL television as a newsman, uh, there for years. Very, he was, he was famous and in my heart, he'll always be famous. So I work with Bob Cottle was a joy that this day I, if I, if that card had been absolutely, that show had been absolutely horrible. The win I would have gotten out of it was hearing Bob talk again, as I said earlier, and do his thing. He was really, really good. Very underrated. Really, really a great job on this show too. And I guess I'm so nostalgic about this show because this is the first clash of the champions that I remember watching live. I was so in love with sting as the world champion. Of course, I'm a little stinger at the time and it's a new era for the NWA and WCW. He finally bested Ric Flair after years of someone really waiting to hand Rick this loss. And I think a lot of people thought it was probably going to be Lex Luger. It winds up being sting and uh, happens at great American bash in 1990. And we've did a full show on that recently available in the archives over at grillandjr.com. But I'm curious from your perspective, what you thought of sting as champion. It is, uh, I guess there's two schools of thought in the wrestling traditionalist booking. You would have a heel champion who's going to go around and make everybody look good in the territory days. And that's certainly what flair did. But now when that's not really the case, maybe it makes sense to have a baby face chase. And that happened for a long time, but it's finally been paid off now. And now sting is your champion, but that presents maybe a new set of problems. We need a challenger. And it certainly feels like you guys just sort of created one here with the black scorpion. Uh, what challenges did it represent from a booking committee standpoint to have sting as your new champ now? Well, some guys were stuck in their ways and believe that, you know, to have the, they, they wanted to find a predecessor to Rick, uh, being a, a IE being a villain and being, uh, able to have good matches with, any, with anybody and, and this get up, slip out of the match by the skin of their teeth. That was an old formula and it was used in a lot of territories. Uh, but the, the way we were looking at it was we we're going to change that a little bit though. those of us that like the sting move and I did that we're going to have, a, we're going to build a superstar superhero champion and we're going to create heels and we're going to have, a, we're going to have a heel factory. So, uh, that was a, that was a game plan, uh, stings, uh, we, that whole black scorpion thing, uh, I don't want to say it kills sting. It did not do him any favors whatsoever. And how we blew off the black scorpion thing, uh, was certainly didn't help. Who I don't know who still to this day, who that helped. It built some intrigue on television and it created a curiosity level that got us a five rating at that clash. But past that Conrad, I don't know how that whole black scorpion thing how successful it was yay or nay, because we, the, we had only, only was booking then and only had the idea because TVS had come down and said, we need to have something big to build to, to get to the clash. And then of course, then to get to the Starcade or I think Starcade. money, money, money and ratings. Okay. That's cool. So only didn't like the pressure. He didn't like them being told what he needed to do. What he, we had, he had a timeline. We need this by Monday, this idea, blah, 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 work on over the weekend. And we'll talk to you Monday. Well, he didn't like that either. So consequently, uh, 
uh, Ole threw it together, the black scorpion angle, uh, almost as a whim, making fun of their demands for a hot angle. And so he, he just threw that together without thinking it through. In other words, most guys, including Ole, who's a very smart guy, by the way, he's a very smart booker and very smart in the wrestling business. He just was an honor old bastard. Uh, so what? Uh, but Cowboy was on real basher too. So was my dad, but I loved them all. So what the hell, uh, it's just the way it is. Ole was, uh, he, he did it as a whim. He did it as a joke, I think half ass. And all of a sudden it started getting over because we had our new hero sting, but man, the fans that all that buildup was great. But when you get in the ring, you got to be able to deliver. Right. So you said, well, that's why we have Rick as a blow off. Rick didn't want to do that, do that booking. He didn't want to do that, be that gig. He didn't want to wrestle a hood on and all that shit. We should, you know? should remind everybody that the concept here is the black scorpion is, is sort of like bizarro Superman. So it's someone who, and of course, you know, sting has the scorpion logo and the scorpion death lock and the stinger splash. And so yeah. we're sort of the dark version of sting and it's presented as being someone from stings past and you could never see his face. And he's always wearing a black hood. And he's always dressed in all black. And I guess the rumor and innuendo that you can confirm for us is it's just only off camera doing funny voices with a deep voice. And that's the black scorpion. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Right. The black scorpion consisted of Ole Anderson and promos that were digitized. It was just audio, strictly audio. And, uh, he, he, the more it got over and the ratings were okay. He felt like then they, the TVS is going to build a promotion to uh, the clash there, clash 12 mountain madness, mountain Dew, whatever it was. And, uh, so he just kept booking and stretching it out and stretching it out and inadvertently creating very interesting episodic television, but here's the killer. The killer is we had no star. Ole had no star involved in mind at his arm's length. He could have had, but he didn't to be the black scorpion because on national free television with that big ass audience, you already quoted the numbers and they were impressive and there's not a wrestling company on television today. They would not like those numbers. I promise you, not being a dick here, just to be, look at the math. Uh, you know, we gave Sting a lousy ass match. That match I watched, it never got, it, it never got its flow. It never got, it never clicked. It was not a good booking. And Al Perez, who was a black scorpion is a hell was a damn good worker, but he didn't fit the mold of a rugged, mean 
I'm going to hurt you heel, even with a mask on. It was bad placement for him and bad book, really, really bad booking for Sting. So that really, I think, slowed Sting's growth down. The fact that Flair carried Luger to an amazing match again, uh, right before that, then you start realizing, well, maybe we should put Rick back in the champ and, and, uh, you know, where we have the heel champion and all the baby faces are chasing him. I, I, quite frankly, I like the other way around. I do like the hero standing tall and he's building some very intriguing, different body types, per, per, uh, you know, presentation skills of villains. Villains are the most compelling entity in pro wrestling. If they're a, really a villain and they're very skilled. Well, maybe part of the problem is nobody really looked the part, but first we should mention sort of where we are as we head into this event. We mentioned this went down on September 5th. So here's the ratings on the way here. Power hour. It's a 3.2 over the weekend of August 3rd through the sixth world championship wrestling got a 2.7 and main event got a 2.4. Now, magically all of this falls off. Power hour goes from a 3.2 to a 2.6 in just one week. And it doesn't can, it doesn't improve the following week, uh, August 24th through the 27th, uh, world champion uh, main event has a 2.3. So you started a 3.2 down to a 2.6 down to a 2.3 week over week, no matter what program you're watching, it starts to look and feel like, uh, people are tuning out here. Panic, panic, creative panic. Uh, instead of letting things smooth out and letting some guys get over, uh, there was panic and a lot of the eyes, uh, trying to search for the cause of the panic, uh, unfortunately were misguided and looked at sting and uh, which is one of the most silliest things I ever heard of, but it was true. And a lot of the corporate people who loved him at first, and they, now they say, well, you've cut his own, going to be as hot creatively as a champion. And he's the champion and look where we are. So what does that mean? It means you haven't given him time to get over. We have not prepared any heels for him. We've overexposed him on television. He's not as special as he used to feel because he's overexposed. When I, that's like somebody saying, well, uh, you know, Seth Rollins wasn't on TV Monday night type thing. Well, that's probably a good deal because that way he's going to get overexposed, uh, down the road farther, not, not closer. Guys don't need to be on TV every week. That's stupid. Uh, it really is. Um, so anyhow, that was, a, that was a story there. I think Sting got blamed for some stuff that the ratings that he didn't deserve to be blamed for. And that's just, those, those are the kind of, you know, you makes you wonder how that's going to be going forward because, you know, we're going to be in a situation with AEW where we're going to have a TV company on our, in our, they're our partner. They're our partner creatively and in every, in every way. So it's going to be interesting to see how the ideas, the creative ideas from both entities, uh, integrate and how those presentations are and how that communication will be established. Bet your ass has got to be addressed because it's just, that's the way it is. I've already lived through this once. So, and, and it's, and really Conrad, it's not a bad thing. If you've got a system in place that can funnel and feed and process all the ideas, all these guys at the corporate world are saying, Hey, we're interested. We want this to be successful. Here's my idea. At least they're willing to embarrass themselves sometimes with a goofy ass idea, but it's because they care. I don't have guys like that. The guys that they're all hands off. They didn't care one way or the other. And it's all about the bottom line. 
Well, something else that is the bottom line is that Owen Hart is not going to be coming to the NWA. And this makes the observer exactly as I read it here. Owen Hart won't be coming in in September, despite what everyone else is saying. The NWA contacted Hart for the first time in several months this past week, and Hart asked to postpone his start until December. And there is some talk the NWA won't bring him in then. I got to tell you, I was fascinated by this because Owen would eventually go to WCW several months later in March of 91. Uh, but he's not long for that world. He winds up, you know, returning to the WWF and, and has quite a run there that we all know about. What do you remember about the talk that Owen may be coming in here in 1990? Well, I was on the committee, so the, I can tell you that there are a few of us that were some, I'll put it this way, everybody that was familiar with Owen's work, and there weren't many on the committee that were, you live a different time, folks. You couldn't just go click on this and click on that, or tell your, you know, tell Surrey to get it, give me an Owen Hart video. Uh, a lot of the guys were not, they knew who he was. They all knew a lot of guys, they all knew Stu for goodness sakes. He's a legend. Uh, so a lot of guys that worked in Stu's territory probably saw Owen when he's small, you know, uh, guys like Brian Pillman trained there in, in Calgary. He got a start in Calgary and I think he was Bruce Hart's tag team partner, but he certainly saw Owen plenty of times you know, in, that, in that territory. So we all knew that Owen was nothing sort of fabulous. He was, I mean, he was really, really amazing. And I, and, and I was so excited. I, I thought he would have been a great champion. I, a lot of things he could have done for us, but you know, he had those mixed feelings about, you know, WWF at the time. And, you know, that was the big perceived big dog and, uh, like they are now. And, and Brett was there. So, uh, they, WWE finally gave Owen the opportunities that he probably have been were over overdue, but man, you can't let a talent like Owen Hart get away. And I don't think that we put enough. Emphasis on getting him signed, to be honest with you. And then he, he had to postpone his start date. Uh, we all believe that that was basically to tell us that he's, he's weighing the offers right now. And we weren't so sure we could win that. One of the things that Meltzer is talking about in the observer in this era is how the contracts are going to have to change. He says more and more talk that there will be no more guaranteed money contracts for wrestlers when the current contracts expire. In the case of Sting, Flair, and Luger, that's a long ways down the road, but most of the rest of the crew have contracts that expire sometime next spring or summer. Because of the guaranteed money, many would rather work here than Titan because some guys with the right deal can actually make more money than in Titan. However, without guaranteed money contracts and being paid on the houses, that would no longer be the case. So at that point, all but a few wrestlers would probably want to make the switch if they're in it simply for the money which would allow Titan to cherry pick nearly anyone, but sting Flair or Luger at some point next year. At the same time, this would save the company a tremendous amount in salaries because quote unquote, paying on the house is a lot cheaper. It is expected several guys will leave since it would mean a major salary decrease. Uh, but though, except for those who have opportunities to go to Titan or Japan, the vast majority still don't have viable options. Since the NWA still pays more than USWA and everyone else. So this is an interesting time because business is certainly on the downswing, not just for WCW and the NWA, but also for the WWF. So when this talk starts to sort of spread like wildfire that, Hey, they're not going to do guaranteed money anymore. Are you fielding a lot of conversation about that at this point? 
That was the one good thing about being on a committee. There were several of us to take the blame uh, for the accounting mandate from Turner Broadcasting. So uh, I got my share. Uh, did, I, I, I thought it was a knee-jerk deal, to be honest with you. I did believe that we had some contracts that were being paid, uh, that guys were not earning it. And that was either our fault because we didn't put in a spotlight on them or, and they didn't run with the ball or it's their fault because they had a spotlight and they, and they fumbled. I don't know, but somebody, some, it's, it's not a baseless deal here. It's not odorless or smellless. There's some stink here. So some, everybody gets a little something on them. Uh, but I think there's ways to address that. You've got to protect your stars and your nucleus has to be protected. So there's always going to be some guaranteed contracts. And if they have the idea that because Luger and flair and sting had long-term big money deals, that when those deals are over, that they would settle to do a non-guarantee contract, then they're, they're idiots. They're morons. That was never going to happen. You're going to get guys to make a big money guaranteed. Hey, there's other places they can go to, to do, to do business, including WWE, including Japan and so forth and so on. So, uh, I thought there was a, a compromise there. And then on the bottom side, instead of eliminating all the underneath guys, the preliminary guys that guarantee money, you may have to lower it a little bit, but then still, again, you let them work their indie shots and they, even though they're under contract, you, uh, you got, you still let them go out and work. So, uh, and make extra cash because you're not paying them that much anyway to be on the preliminary side of the, of the roster. There were ways to look at that, but you know, uh, Conrad, the us in the office were never asked one time. I was now, I don't think any of the other guys would have been, cause I was part of the most likely suspect in that dialogue. Nobody ever said a word. It came and it boom here. It's like, here's your email. Here it is. New rules. And that's where it was. So it's very quickly thought. I thought it was a little knee jerk. And, uh, not very creative financing by a, a group. that was supposed to be a lot of smart people. Let's, uh, keep it moving here. We should mention though, that WCW and guaranteed money, the narrative for a long time has been that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash secured that for the boys, quote unquote. But the reality is midnight express, Lex Luger, sting, the road warriors. These guys all had that in the late eighties, right? Right. Yeah, they did. And. Again, it's what you had to do to conduct business. No different than you need rings and a TV clearance and a, and a great time slot. Uh, you gotta have talent and to get the quality talent that we wanted to build this around and not unlike AEW's goal is to be more at be athletic and athletic and very, uh, you know, physical physicality is going to be prominent. We wanted to do that back in the, in the eighties, this, this roster. And, uh, but you, you, you can't. So goods out of an empty wagon, my granny used to say. So you got to pay those horses to run. We should also mention that, um, Larry Zabisco makes the observer in this era where he says that he's got a meeting schedule for mid August. And if all goes well, he may debut at a taping very soon, even as soon as that night. But the big thing I found was there's talk of an AWA title defense on the October 27th pay-per-view, but everything is in the talking stages right now. Now, of course. That's going to be Halloween havoc. Chat me up though. I'm fascinated by Larry's Zabisco, perhaps defending the AWA title 
on Halloween Havoc. Do you remember that ever being discussed? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, believe that this in all due respect to the AWA, uh, a lot of greats were born there. Truly. Uh, I thought the sun had rose and set on that brand. Right. I didn't know that an AWA title match would mean anything. Ole was booking. Ole was a more of a, a Zabisco devotee than maybe some others because Larry was that old school heel that was deliberate, methodical, and uh, used a lot of ring psychology and less uh, physicality. Even though when Larry turned it up, he could be physical, no doubt about it. But uh, Ole liked his style and the fact that we, of what he was. And, but I never, and of course, Ole's from, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, where AWA was king. Uh, and and he, were, he started for Vern, so, you know, he, the AWA was big to Ole. So I guess that was the reasons, because to, to me, it was so uh, passe at that point in time. He wound up showing up in, uh, I think, December of 90, and around that same time, once he's departed, uh, Mr. Ganya formally strips him of the title. And of course he files for bankruptcy in 91 and that's it for the AWA. But I feel like we should mention that, uh, there's lots and lots of moving parts in wrestling here. Meltzer would say, if you would argue the point that the NWA is in far worse shape today than it was just one year ago, if you look at the card in Baltimore in 89 and 90, while both appear to be the strongest shows the group will put on all year. 89 was the far superior show. The difference wasn't production. It was the quality of talent. Yeah. You you lose Ricky steamboat, Terry Funk, Muda, Dr. Death, Terry Gordy, road warriors, Dan Spivey, Shane Douglas. And in their place, it's mean Mark JFD, which is his way of saying junkyard dog. He called him junk food dog, Eligante, Paul Orndorff, Arn Anderson, Southern boys, rock and roll express and Barry Windham. And you see a company that isn't making progress quote. I'm not blaming the company for any specific thing as the losses were for individual reasons. And within a one year period, you're always going to lose some talent and replace them with others. But some of those losses were inevitable, such as the road warriors whose value in their mind and in Jim Hurd's mind were so far apart that no compromise was going to occur or Williams and Gordy, who simply earned too much money in Japan for the NWA to keep them. Douglas and Spivey, the company probably had no choice. Steamboat, Muda, and Funk are different cases entirely where that have been brought up over and over again. For a building company, this isn't good. More importantly, of the big three, Sting, Flair, and Luger, one can question if in the ring are as good as they were even one year ago. Sting was spectacular then, but because of energy or injuries, hasn't come close to that form. Luger works far better as a heel. And Flair's coming off his greatest matches of his career, but he had an opponent of his caliber at the time instead Steamboat. of simply having to carry people night after night. So a bit of a breakdown of the sort of the deterioration of the roster. And while I know he's throwing some shade, you know, one of these guys is going to go on to be the undertaker. Arn Anderson is a great addition in any company. The Southern boys are underrated. The rock and roll express, one of the all time greats as is Barry Windham. So it's not all bad, but when you do see big names like Steamboat, <clears throat> Funk, and Muda and the Road Warriors all gone, were you starting to feel like, damn, maybe the wheels are coming off here? No, I never, I never, the wheels are fine. Uh, I didn't have the same <clears throat> opinion that Dave did about this situation. There were things that we could do, we could have done, obviously, 
but uh, it's hard. It's frustrating as hell to talk about it right now because at that time there was a small group of us. Tony Schiavone was one. We're we're being we're being uh, bounced around by the crazy uh, VP of the division, the head honcho, and Jim Hurd. And then we've got a pissed off. I don't want to be here. Ole Anderson as the booker. It was a very negative place to work. And, but there were things, if they had consult, consult with us and consulted, I should say, uh, we could, uh, doc and Gordy should have been hired, but again, it's a matter of making a commitment to the talent and not blowing everything up because, uh, the, uh, budgets look upside down. You have to adjust things. But what I'm saying is that the overall understanding of running any wrestling company and thank God Tony Khan gets it is that you can't play without players. The talent and the television are your two most important entities in any wrestling company case closed as Ernie Ladd would say. And so, uh, there are things we could have done, but nobody asked. And all of a sudden these guys are gone. Well, where's Doc and Gordy? Well, they gave their, you know, we let them go because of, you know, they didn't have any date enough dates for us or whatever. And we, you should have believed that the road warriors after that run, they had with Dusty and all those guys, they were going, they were looking to change addresses and go to the WWF where they could make uh, a great living. So some of these things were not surprises, but there was no, no preparation for it. There was no strategy meetings regarding it. All the booking committee meant to do was to does to write TV period. That's it. They didn't book that live events. Uh, they didn't do anything about the budgets, nothing. So their job was that to write television, a big job nonetheless, but that was their gig. So we weren't, we weren't included in the thinking or the planning, strategizing or problem solving of some of those other issues. The long-term direction is something that Meltz would write about. He says, is there any, if there is, it's a well-kept secret. They don't. Or they want characters for kids, but yet they don't put those characters on television or they don't work their gimmick. Is there a single more ridiculous gimmick than Brad Armstrong's Candyman routine? Has no. anyone ever seen him actually give out candy? No, they just tell us he does it, which is a whole lot less effective than him actually doing it. And even if they did, what good is a gimmick on someone who rarely wins on television with few exceptions, the jobber shouldn't have a gimmick because it wastes the gimmick since the jobber won't get over. Therefore, neither will the gimmick. I read how they want to merge their loyal audience with the kids audience. And that reads like someone with a marketing plan, but there is so, no evidence of that on television. Has it worked? Less people are going to the house shows than this time last year. And that's with more television exposure. So Meltzer are very critical of the direction or lack thereof. And he cites the Candyman, which is something that Tony Schiavone has had a lot of fun with. He talked about the time that Jim Hurd brought that up in a meeting and he said he wanted a goddamn candy man That's someone to just throw candy to kids. What can you tell us about these sort of, uh, I don't know, not long for this world gimmicks that heard fell in love with like the candy man and the hunchbacks and the ding dongs, uh, and, and others, I'm sure slipped my mind probably on purpose. Sometimes we're, I'm told we purge bad things out of our memory. That's some of my bad things. Uh, Irrational man is product knowledge. It's so simple. 
what these issues are, the root of these issues. Candy, Brad Armstrong was one of the absolute very best workers in the world. And he's known for a whole lot more than giving Dr. Death 107 stitches in his eye in Mid-South Wrestling. He was, Brad Armstrong was nothing but silk, man. And, uh, and he got, he was saddled with a gimmick that is not going to get uh, ever get over ever. So that was the illogical thinking. And you would maybe put a stupid ass mask and that gimmick on somebody else that's going to be uh, forever in pre- prelims, but Brad Armstrong under the right conditions could have a main event match with anybody. I venture to say if Brad Armstrong had been the black scorpion that night in Asheville that he would have had a, an amazing match with sting as versus Al Perez. That's a, that's a fun idea. I don't know that I've heard that one before. Uh, something else I hadn't heard was that, um, I mean, I guess this has long been rumored Meltzer would write some heat because the company hired a bodybuilder and put stings head on the guy's body for newspaper ads. Since it basically says stings body wasn't good enough for the ads. So this is pre Photoshop when you can just, you know, fire up your MacBook and get to business. But mm-hmm. this has been debated. There's a, a couple of famous pictures out there. One in particular with sting wearing black tights that a lot of fans over the years have said, uh, that's not stings body. Do you remember hearing about this? Yeah. Stupid. Another issue where you've got a company, you got two different, you're, you're serving a lot of masters. You got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> Somebody thought that on the Turner side was a good idea because they found a new toy they could use them to do on their computer. I'm assuming, uh, but it, there wasn't even Photoshopping wasn't a thing then. Right. So, uh, as you, you mentioned, so it, again, no product knowledge, no respect for the business to any degree. You would never change a guy's physique in that regard. So blatantly because all it does reflect bad on sting. It doesn't reflect bad on the art department or the graphics department. It, it reflects bad on the sting and the brand. And some of them there just didn't get that. One of the other things I saw in the newsletter is that Beetlejuice was supposed to start on September 18th. Quote, while nobody is saying it's Art Bar, Art's father has told people in Oregon that his son was going to be in the NWA. So I'm 90% sure that's who it is. Of course, Art Bar comes in as Beetlejuice and a few years later, he goes on to set Mexico on fire with Eddie Guerrero. Uh, Art's no longer with us. What do you remember about Art Barr and his brief cup of coffee here with the company? Uh, I liked him uh, a lot. In the ring, uh, he was awesome. I mean, he was just really uh, uh, extraordinary. Uh, we were, he, again, Art Barr was, for, for my eyes and my talent evaluation, uh, was like a not getting him was like getting, getting, getting Owen Hart, high skill levels, great upside. They're young. They can do everything and they know how to wrestle. They know how to work. They understand psychology. Uh, so art was a real good, he's kind of quiet kid, you know, uh, uh, for when I was around him and, and that was in the locker room. I'll be honest about that too. It was around, I didn't hang with him. Uh, but I saw him a lot of work. We talk about the territory, Don Owen territory in Portland all that good stuff. And then his success outside, I thought he was going to be a hell of a hand. I think, uh, I'm trying to remember. It might've been that we, he might've got booked because I'm, I'm thinking Roddy Piper may have talked to Ole. It's been, it's been written that Ole didn't want to hire him. He thought he was too small, but Jim yeah. heard 
saw something. I don't know if it was in the gimmick or what. And of course, when he comes in, he's renamed the juicer instead of Beetlejuice. They want to avoid, you know, that hit movie Beetlejuice. They don't want to get sued for that. So you guys just switch it to the juicer, but can you comment on the, the rumor and innuendo that maybe Oli wasn't sold on him just based on his size. Whereas heard maybe saw something in the character of the performer. I, I think that Oli didn't want to hire him. I think, but when Heard called him to his attention and maybe some of us around her, you think Jim Heard went out and researched Beetlejuice? I don't no. think so. No. Somebody on the staff may have given him a tape and they, so you could say, look at this kid. We can hire him. We can have him here next week type thing. And then her got all fell in love with him. And then, then, then it's like heard then that, that little bit of information. It's like, you know, uh, sticking a dog with a sharp stick. They're going to bite your ass. So her just kept nipping at Oli. So finally Oli just, I think basically gave up, but I think somewhere in that equation of all that ignorant bullshit, it was the fact that I think, uh, uh, Roddy Piper had. I can't remember who the hell he talked to. Somebody on our group he talked to, he's friendly, we're still friendly with. And it may have been Flair, because they're still friends from Mid Atlantic. Uh, that you know, he was he, he was a big endorser. So that was really good enough for me. And then I have been you know, I'd read Meltzer's Observer and Meltzer kept giving this kid consistently uh, good reviews. His match quality was consistently uh, you know, as good, if not better than anything on the card, with a lot of great workers. So you know, what do we have to lose, man? We want to get somebody hot and build a star. And there was a there's a look, I can promise you this. The, when the, you look back at this WCW run the whole damn time before Eric got the job, the, the, uh, Turner oriented WWF ish characters that heard thought were going to be salvation and were going to appeal to both children and adults. Uh, was uh, a complete train wreck. At no time were we ever informed this is where we want to go, other than uh, the kids are like the Candyman type thing. Right. So th- that so anyway. So then when Oli or any other Booker, or those traditionalist Bookers, were saddled with you got to be funny, you got to be entertaining, then or not, uh, we're going to use this guy anyway. I'm signing him. I want you to book him and use him. So the booker says, okay, well, I'll book him. All right. I'll give us, you know, a lousy ass gimmick. This like putting a goddamn, uh, you know, anvil on the back of a skin diver. They ain't going to do too good. So that's that how that worked. It was, a, it was always inner turmoil. You have bookers with different philosophies than the, than the VP who allegedly was getting some of his feedback from, from, uh, uh Turner's uh, marketing and research and promotions department. It was, it was again, too many cooks in the kitchen. Well, the juicers coming in and the undertakers going out, talk about you guys trying some different gimmicks. Mean Mark is going to finish up on nine 11. Uh, he was supposed to finish up and, uh, go to new Japan, but Meltzer would say he's been in contact with the WWF and quote, there's a good chance he'll be there sometime in 1991. Of course we know. He's going to debut in just about two months at the November survivor series pay-per-view under the undertaker character. what did you think of mean Mark? And when did you know, Hey, uh, he's out of here and he's going to the WWF. Well, look, he's six ten and weighed 300 pounds. He's very athletic. Uh, and he had an excellent mind for the business. Those combinations don't come along too often. So it wasn't a secret. 
that somebody might want to recruit him, especially the WWF. Uh, and a lot of big baby faces there. He needs big heels, uh, all that good stuff. So I never was able to convince Ole that Mark, a professionally known as the undertaker was ever going to draw any money or be a star. I did. Apparently I didn't do a very good job of selling it because, and I'm not so sure that Mark had an overabundance of people that believe that as well, or if they, they may have actually believed it. But because uh, active performers are on the booking committee, sometimes that clouds their vision. And he sure did one of sometimes guys are leery of bringing competition into their, for their spot. Uh, but I, Mark was making, uh, three grand a week, 156 K a year. Uh, and that was kind of the traditional, the standard contract for a lot of guys. Then, uh, that's what Philman made and zinc made and probably 15 other guys. And, and those numbers were not were not accurate. They're not, they're, they were, they're just, it was a border plate deal. You can't border plate talents. You got to treat everybody uniquely. Everybody's got a different value and so forth. But I, I, when I said to Ole, I said, he's going to, you know, his contract's coming up. He said, well, I don't want to keep him. And, uh, he said, he, he can just let him go. And I said, I think we're making a mistake. And, you know, Ole and I had a nice little argument about that. You know, of course he won the argument because he was the boss. I said, we're making a mistake here. This guy's going to mean something someday. And he could, you just don't find that many guys, Conrad, that, that big, that athletic, he was young then, you know, Mark was, you know, just getting going. And I just saw the, thought the world of his abilities, his upside, but Ole did not. And so, you know, and I don't know that her did either. And that's the problem is that if you had, we had other people there that had influence that had some product knowledge, they would have seen that you don't let a talent like that get away. And we did. Well, and, uh, you know, mean Mark is going to rest in peace here in WCW. Now let's get to clash of the champions. 12, you and Bob get started off and announced there's going to be 10 matches, which is a loaded show, but the only two matches you're really pushing the entire night are sting. And of course, uh, he's going to be taking on black scorpion, defending the world title. And Lex Luger is going to be defending the United States championship against Ric Flair. We're off to a good start though. Two of our favorites here on the show, the wild eyed Southern boys, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong go eight minutes and 32 seconds with the free birds. And of course this WCW incarnation is Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. Maybe this doesn't age the best in the world. The free birds are out in their full rebel flag robes and face paint, different time, different era. And, uh, they're still doing their We're the greatest rock band in the world. And we're going to get a music video for that later in this show. I don't think the Southern boys ever had a bad match. And this is no exception Two stars here. Maybe not the, uh, the best match they ever had, but I enjoy the Southern boys. So I dug it. What'd you think? Uh, I've always liked the work of both those teams. Southern boys are really they're young and vibrant and Tracy Smothers has always been extremely underrated. Uh, really a hell of a talent. Um, Steve Armstrong, what do you say? He's an Armstrong. What else do you need in the ear? And then had bullet Bob there at ringside. And quite frankly, here's the funny thing about that. I don't know how old Bob was at that point in time, certainly over 50. He looked better than anybody in the match. Yeah. Th- we should mention that uh, originally this was supposed to be a six man with buddy Roberts being the third free bird and bullet Bob Armstrong. That's right. This bullet Bob Armstrong being in there and that's changed and Meltzer sort of freestyles why he thinks that may have been, but he's not exactly sure. Uh, because he, he says, Hey, maybe it's just, he didn't want someone 
or two old guys in the ring or, or, or whatever. He, he wanted a, a more youthful look, but you're exactly right. He's 50 years old here, but he's built like a, uh, to use a Southern phrase, a brick shit house. He looks great. Yeah, he did. And he has so much charisma. That's for road dog, especially gets a lot of that charisma from his uh, dad who has exuded it. But uh, the match is okay. It was a good starter. It was colorful, very politically incorrect, uh, in today's standards. Back then it was, it was borderline. Even then the, the, uh, con- con- uh Confederate flags and, and the, and the, the Southern boys had their, uh, their arm, their uniforms on from the South of the civil war. It just, it, it was just weird to watch it because now you would never see something like that. Uh, but the guys had a nice opener, you know, it was, it was booked for what it was. And, it, and I think they delivered a nice opening match and nothing more, nothing less. We should mention that in this era, as crazy as this sounds, the former Rocky King is going to be tagging around with the Freebirds here. And I think his name was little Richard Marley. Yeah. What the <laughs> fuck was this man? Uh, an idea that Michael and Jimmy had <laughs> probably, probably more Michael than anybody else. Uh, uh, he could take great bumps. Of course, the Marley reference was. There's always a way to get back to the, the marijuana references and things, but uh, uh, Rocky was a Rocky King, nice kid. He's on the ring crew, did a lot of things, but he was a, a, a kind of underrated preliminary guy. But he took great bumps and took an amazing ass whipping. So you see that if there is a surrogate uh, ass getting at their ass whip guy. Uh, little Richard Marley was a perfect choice. Well, it is curious that the next choice. And, from, and he might have, he also may have rolled good joints. I don't know that that's rumor and innuendo as well. I have no idea. Well, learn something new every day. There you go. Maybe, uh, uh Mike Rotunda, buddy Landale, buddy Landale is in the ring. Uh, when we come back from commercial and showing off his skid row, I wouldn't say tattoo, but he's, he's written with a marker skid row on his shoulder saying, those are my boys clearly looking for the rub from the rock band. And Mike Rotunda is introduced with a, a lovely valet where you guys list off her accolades and that escaped me, but but she won a contest. That's all she won a Burger King contest and she wrote poetry. So the contest is sponsored by Burger King with TBS and it, it had to do about fans sending in their poetry regarding, uh, topics that would be under the WCW, uh, umbrella. That's who she was. She, once she got there, she went, she took a seat and she wasn't involved in the match, but, uh, nonetheless, I felt kind of bad for Mike Rotunda because he, I know he was the captain Mike and the little, uh, you know, sailor thing, but he did look like he was a little bit at sea and rudderless, uh, you know, buddy Landell could be when he wanted to be, could be as good as anybody in the game. Uh, but he'd like to screw around a lot and you know, he, but he didn't make good decisions all the time. God bless him. But boy, he had a lot of great natural ability, but neither of those guys were being booked to their capabilities. Uh, in my estimation, it was a space holder and it's probably a four or five minute match. Nothing special, just fundamental and fill the time. That's all it was. Yeah. Meltzer even says that he says that, you know, he feels like guys are just trying to get through quote. No heat. Nobody cared. Fans were walking around even in the first few rows with no one paying attention to the match. While some of the matches on this card had an excuse for being bad and that the guys are green or aren't good workers. There's no excuse here. Actually, there is a reason right now. The promotion basically wants the preliminary matches to do their time. 
not do anything fancy and do their finish. Sounds more like the WWF all the time. Half a star. I got to tell you when I watch this match and don't get me wrong, it is just sort of there. I don't know that I thought, boy, Mike Rotunda and Buddy Landale have all these hot moves. They could be pulling out, but WCW's just hold them down. Uh, what do you think of Meltzer's assertion here that maybe these guys were capable of a better match, but the office doesn't want them to do anything too fancy. Old school bookers do not want the undercard guys to overshadow and to steal the spotlight away from the quote unquote main eventers that they placed in the main event because of their creative or their judgment, their instincts are a favor, whatever the reasons are being there. So, uh, old school bookers never wanted the undercard guys, uh, to purpose to go out of their way to upstage the main eventers, uh, kicking out of finishes and things of that nature, uh, keep it in the ring. Uh, you know, it used to be a real, if you, you, there, we don't go out of the ring until at sometime after intermission and only then by, uh, you have to have permission, that type thing, S- keep it more, make it, make it easier for the main event guy to follow. I, on the other hand, had a little different philosophy. I thought the main event guys should have to bust their balls to get over and the guys before them should work just as hard. Don't steal finishes, don't steal spots, but work, to work hard and work exciting and try to get yourself over. If you get over, uh, over the main event guys, then shame on them, uh, and more power to you. I feel like we should mention here that, uh, the next man, uh, that match, by the way, gets a half a star, but the next match with almost no fanfare, it's going to become, I don't know, a rather important match, I guess, in wrestling history. Maybe it's Brad Armstrong and his tights, of course, say the candy man, or as Tony Schiavone would say the goddamn candy man and Tim Horner. And they're going to be wrestling two guys who I believe are making their debut, certainly their television debut, but Meltzer even thinks this may have been their first match quote. The blasters are definitely big guys for the life of me. I can't understand letting guys make their pro debut on a show of this caliber. Actually for their first match, it could have been a whole lot worse. The taller guy was okay for a first match and the smaller guy was pretty bad. The whole match move for move was worked out a hell of time, which was the safe way of doing it. The taller of the blasters who is billed at six ten, although not muscularly massive as Sid vicious is called iron. The other guy is steel really just another fifth rate road warrior imitation tag team steel pinned Horner after a double shoulder block really felt sorry for Armstrong and Horner here. No crowd reaction, but it was fast paced and all action, albeit mainly pretty bad action. Only four minutes, 50 seconds. He gave it a dud rating. Of course, the smaller blaster, he says it's not as good as Al green, but the bigger blaster, the one and only Kevin Nash. This is before he's been in Vegas. This is before he's Oz. This is yep. his big prime time debut. What did you think watching the match back? And isn't it sort of fascinating to see uh, Bambi on her new legs here, Kevin Nash with uh, yeah, uh, the wrestling ring. You know, yeah, I got it. <laughs> uh, Kevin was, uh, right off the, uh, security detail there at the cheetah and uh, a lot of, so a lot of us, a lot of guys went there and got be buddies with him. And I met him and, uh, there a few times at the nice gentleman's club. And, uh, you know, he played basketball at, at Knoxville and at Tennessee and he's a, he had a good body and he's you know, all that good stuff. So well, you guys got to get good to gab too. And so he was the, uh, he, he, it's funny to see where he's, I just did that, that, uh, wizard world, a great time, by the way, last week in Tulsa, it's a wizard world. 
Uh, and uh, he looked great, by the way, Kevin. Great, getting a lot of more, more, more movie roles and so forth. It's just fun to go back and watch it. You know, just guys are always going to be fundamentally what they started out being. They have certain skill, certain skill sets. Their body allows them to do certain things. They have so many tools in their toolbox. They're going to use them. The smart guys will figure out know how, what tool to take out when. Some guys just dump the whole damn toolbox on the floor and pick up stuff as it goes. But I, I enjoyed uh, seeing this reminiscing to see how, how it went. The match went short because it, if it gone any longer, it, it would have been perceived even worse. Uh, there was no build up, uh, no nothing, and uh, just it, it was another one of those deals where Ole was told to book new teams. We need new talent. We need new acts on television, and so hence uh, the Master Blasters were born, and it was not they were born. And I think Kevin, Kevin wasn't handpicked to be there as much as he was available and not being used. So that was kind of how that was. So it was ill-conceived and the results bell to bell proved that two big jacked up dudes with crazy haircuts and face paint. Of course, people are going to draw comparisons to the road warriors. Do you think the master blasters were created out of necessity that, Hey, we don't have the road warriors can't afford them. Let's get these uh, great value road warriors instead. Well, maybe. Uh, it, it had, it had road warrior connotations on it because Ole was the guy that created the road warriors and he had two big muscle guys, uh, and, and Joe and, and the Hawk, Mike, Mike and, and Joe were, you know, Minnesota boys that, you know, and Eddie Sharkey was, uh, involved, I think in their training, if I'm not mistaken, if I am, I apologize, Eddie, Eddie Sharkey, a great trainer, uh, and Ole and Sharkey had a, you know, they, they, they knew each other from the Minnesota and AWA days. So I think Oldie's just going back to the well, uh, and dancer try to find out if he could dance a, a different dancing partner, but dance the same music. Uh, w- we did the same thing in the mid South before that with, uh, Hellwig and sting with warrior ultimate warrior and, and sting trying to create our own road warriors. Everybody was trying to figure out what was hot. And when you, when you had territories, you could kind of, you do some carving, uh, copy, you copy catting. Uh, but that's kind of, yeah, they only tried, uh, this is not gonna be the only time only tries to create, recreate the road warrior. So, uh, you know, he kept looking to see if he could find that magic and there was no magic like a uh, hawk and animal. Well, there's no magic in the next match either. It's nasty boys taking on Terry Taylor and Jackie Fulton, Jackie Fulton, probably a name. A lot of our listeners have never even heard before this match goes a seven minute, 11 He's, second. I mark. think I'm sorry, Conrad. He was the, just some people know. He was, uh, I think he was the younger brother of Bobby Fulton of the fantastics. So somewhere around Chillicothe, Ohio, I think, and I might be wrong on that. So yeah, I can correct no, me. No, there. you're right. Bobby, Bobby Fulton is uh Chillicothe, Ohio. And Bobby Fulton yeah. is, is, is indeed his brother. And yeah. he, uh, had a quite a run in Japan. Uh, I don't know if he was under a hood there as the Eagle, but uh, I know he wrestled in all Japan and. Uh, I know he was spent some time in Smoky Mountain and he bounced around a little bit, but never the big, big stage. Meltzer would say this is probably the best he's seen him. Terry Taylor looked good <laughs> and in the right situations appears he could be awesome. But Meltzer would say, I don't see that right situation on the horizon right now. He said, this is, uh, probably as good as the nasties have looked and they have this weird charisma, but they're really only just fair workers. He gave this seven minute match a star in three quarters. I don't know that you and I've talked about this before, Jr. but I have this weird guilty pleasure where I think the nasty boys are criminally underrated. I know people maybe 
funny haha at the gimmick or I don't like the look or whatever. But as far as two brawlers, they knew how to have a good match, and I didn't hate this one. What'd you think? Uh, the Nasty Boys were best uh, as uh, brawling heels. And you give them a little cause of brawling heels or somebody that could fight with them. I thought they were very good. Uh, I'm not so, was not so high on their baby face work. It says bad. I just was a big, bigger fan of their heel work. Uh, as you look at it, uh, Terry Taylor is grossly misbooked in this match. There's no reason he should have been in, in that such scenario. He just, he just got through being the red rooster. He'd been relegated to preliminary status and almost within the business, uh, kind of a laughing stock in some, in some corners because of the gimmick that he was strapped with, but he was man enough to do the gimmick His man enough to keep earning his money and take care of his family. So, uh, at the end of the day, I don't know if his run in WWE F was a success or a failure as a red rooster. All I know is he continued to feed his family and that's got to count for something. Uh, by the way, Terry Taylor would have been another good one to be the black scorpion. Uh, yeah, that, that's so fascinating because he's coming right off of the silly red rooster run. And we've talked about that a lot on, on all my podcasts, but man, if he would have been slotted in there against sting as the black scorpion, th- that would have been a great idea. It's, it's a shame that, that that one didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, he would, he would have made sure that sting looked like a million bucks and he got name identity and he could be pissed off because of being the red rooster. Uh, he could have this angry, bitter, I'm at the world, uh, mindset, but the bottom line is he could have made, had a great match for sting and sting did not get that as we've talked about and we'll continue to momentarily, but, uh, that's just, that's one guy's vision of the creative, uh, and another person's and mine in this case that, uh, it didn't work. Uh, you know, only didn't ask for any help. He didn't want to be there folks. Remember, I'm telling you this. You think I'm BSing you? He, he was, he's been very happy to be fired and paid off. That's we what should, he was, you know, very, 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 been very pleased with that. If that would have occurred, we should mention that you're not the only person who had the idea for him to be the scorpion. Meltzer would say you could even debut Terry Taylor as the scorpion, have a great match and then have Sid do the run in without giving a pinfall sting can keep his heat by unmasking Taylor. Taylor will benefit by having a great match without getting pinned and Sid can still do whatever he needs to do. I don't want anyone to think of these ideas as mine. In fact, they were all given to me by someone within the company, but all seem to be viable. Debuting Terry Taylor on the losing side of a bad opening tag match will hardly remove the jobber image. Vince McMahon gave the guy. And what's the point of even bringing the guy in. If he's going to be as important to the NWA as he was to the WWF. Bingo logical. That's a good assessment. In my view, uh, one of the key things about booking is to find Paul Heyman did this, did this very, very well in, uh, ECW. He figured out very quickly, everybody's strengths and weaknesses, their limitations, etc., And he put them in the lineup in the position they best could contribute to wins, meaning profits, not win losses, profitability, selling tickets. And, uh, we didn't do that very well down there because there was very little objectivity. And again, you got guys that are butting heads that your head guy and the booker are not getting along, not only with each other, but hardly with anybody else as well. And many of us there, and you can talk to Tony about this sometime too. I'm sure maybe he and I could do something about this one of these days. Uh, but we, we were handcuffed, man. We, we didn't have, there's nothing we could do, but do our work. 
I mean, Oli left there one time on a Friday and the Sunday night show had all these different elements that had already been pre-taped and matches included. And they were voiced over. And he said, uh, he's working on the show for, uh, the next week uh, for Saturday night show taping. He said, I don't feel like writing a Sunday show. You guys got to write it. If you don't, it won't air. So Tony and I stayed late and wrote a show for Sunday night. And we did that a lot. So it was just chaotic. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good, smooth environment for creating anything. You got to have some level of positivity. We didn't have that. What we did have was a match with Tommy rich and wild Bill Irwin, three minutes, 57 seconds. Tommy rich is going to get the pinfall in just under four minutes with a Thez press. Meltzer would say they did about as good as they could given the time uh, restrictions here star and a half. I got to ask Jim, I, you know, I, I look at this card so far for a clash of the champions. And this is supposed to be one of your sort of tent pole events. And you got this big mm-hmm. audience. I get the Southern boys. I get the free birds on some level. I guess I get Mike Rotunda and buddy Landale. Maybe I don't. I understand. We got a debut, the master blasters. They got to beat somebody. So Brad Armstrong or Tim Horner. Okay. But Jackie Fulton and Terry Taylor on against the nasty boys. And now Tommy rich and bill Irwin, this just feels thrown together. Yeah. Ill-conceived and no plan going forward because there was none. There was none. We didn't even know at that paper, that uh, clash Conrad, when we were going to blow off the black scorpion angle and who the black scorpion might actually be. So that's where that, that's how disjointed that whole damn thing was. So we were, we're on this very treacherous road with our headlights turned off. Cause we didn't know where the hell we were going, figuring to wreck any time, but that's kind of the, the atmosphere there. But you know, for, for. All, you know, like Bob Coddle and I, and, and, and Tony back doing interviews, Missy was doing interviews. We just call what we saw. People say, well, how do you do, how do you work? A, how do you do this pro wrestling thing? If you don't know the finishes, which I find to be easy or, or the direction, you need to know the long-term direction. So if somebody said, Hey, Jr., we're going to go with Sting, We're going to go with sting as our champion, uh, till for a year. Well, now you can sit in and figure out your commentary. You can lay your story out. You can book him a little bit better. You don't overexpose him, et cetera, et cetera. But man, we had no long-term plan whatsoever. And so all we were doing is Bob and I on that show, if you'll go back and listen on the WWE network, uh, you'll hear us doing a show that we only call what we saw. Uh, we didn't go to backstory a lot. Sometimes we were a little bit to set up something. Basically we, we did a ball game presentation, a more sports oriented athletic uh, uh, feeling presentation. And that's all we, that's all we could do. And quite frankly, in some ways it helps announcers start to know too much. It's fascinating to me that this is what they put together and the hits keep coming here. We get four minutes and 10 seconds for the next match, which is a very rare ladies match for the LPWA title. Susan Sexton pins Bambi and, uh, four minutes and 10 seconds. I don't, uh, I don't know where this fits in here. Meltzer would say no heat or interest in this match whatsoever, but the work itself was fair. Neither girl did anything eye popping, which doomed the match. And for women to get over in the United States, they have to do something that stuns people into paying attention. And the best example is the jumping bomb angels from a few years back when they first came in, 
They came to the WWF from Japan and their match usually got over than any other match on the card because of the work rate and nothing else. But once they started working the American style at the end, their matches had no heat for the women to get over. They need women who have special talent and are better than the men, not a regular run of the mill workers who just happened to be there. Three quarters of a star. He's not high on this one. I understand why. Um, the belt looks hokey. The whole presentation looks off. And I don't know. I found myself wondering who thought this was a good idea. Oli did Conrad. Oli thought it was a good idea. Oli and Bambi go way back. Mm. Uh, uh, in the sense, not it's off sexual. I don't know anything about that. Right. Uh, but she was a local Atlanta girl had some ties to Georgia championship wrestling, maybe through her dad or something. I'm not really sure. I've met her many times. She's a very nice young woman. She's not so young now, like, like any of us, but she was a solid worker. I think that basically was a favor of Oli to her. Uh, and, uh, Susan Sexton was a, was a, was a veteran. We knew they could go out and have a fundamentally sound match, but we also knew it didn't mean anything because they had no buildup on TV, no backstory, no storyline, no nothing. Oli wanted to have Susan on the show or have uh, Bambi on the show. And he did. And then look, she's involved. I, she's a coach, I think for, uh, is she's coaching for a while or, uh, or maybe it's, uh, oh hell. Uh, what's the David, what did David McLean create? Yeah, wow. You're right. Wow. She's doing wow. So she's, she's coaching and she's really good at what she does. So, uh, but I think that relationship goes back a long way to when she was younger. Uh, hell, I'm not so sure she didn't work on the ring crew or something at one time. But that's kind of how that worked out. It was nothing salacious to my knowledge or anything. Just it added some, and, and maybe it's some, hey, here's the other thing. We don't know that Turner marketing said, Hey, we get some requests for women's matches, right? Then that goes, that goes to her Hurt amplifies that. Oh, Hey, they want a women's match bad. We got to have one there. Oldie. You got a goddamn it. You got to give me a women's match. So Oli's thinking, okay, you old crazy bastard. I'll give you a women's match. All right. So he got his buddy Bambi and, and her regular, uh, adversary on the independent circuit and so forth. And there's your match. It meant nothing. It didn't do the girls any favors, except it paid them. They got paid for it and they got national exposure. And I don't know if the exposure was positive or negative, but to you it's negative, but that's how that match came about. It was just one of those political deals. Uh, and. And as only thing he's all, all only did for Bambi is again, a hell of a nice lady was payer because the match didn't help her a whole hell of a lot because there's no buildup or no nothing that's dropping in like a, you know, parachuting into behind enemy lines. Next up, Rick and Scott Steiner are going to get a win over maximum overdrive in six minutes and 24 seconds. Overdrive are billed as Hunter and silencer silencers, Jeff Horner Hunter is Tim hunt. Uh, they are exactly what you expect. Another road warrior ripoff concept, uh, <laughs> typical Steiner squash match, but Meltzer would say not as good as your typical one, because, uh, normally the, uh, enhancement talent at TV tapings are better bumpers, but, uh, lots of interesting stuff here, including the Frankensteiner that everybody wants to see. And, uh, they use a, a finisher where it's a DDT off the top rope, which looks pretty dangerous star and a half. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, the early Steiner brother stuff. And even if this was essentially an enhancement match, I dug it, uh, at this point, did you guys think, and I know we've, we've sort of talked about this a little bit in the past, Rick Steiner looks like the breakout star at first, but in time, 
it certainly feels like Scott's the one who's got the ability to break out, especially when he does the Frankensteiner, a move that really gets everybody to pay attention. Did you think there was going to be a breakout star here as a single star? Did you assume they would always wind up that way? And who would you have picked here in September of 90 to be the breakout of the pair? Well, Scotty had the look. Scotty had a better look uh, than Rick in that regard, more of that bodybuilder, superhero look. Uh, and, and you know, Ricky didn't. Ricky had a great athletic body, but he didn't have the, the cut that Scott had. So that was seemingly at that time was a little bit more appealing. I always loved Rick Steiner's work, though. I, I just thought he was solid and believable. Uh, tough guy, really tough guy, but so was Scotty. Uh, but Scotty seemed to have the most, uh, when Scotty came in, when, when we brought in in mid South, brought in Rick Steiner, that was his name, Rick, Rick, uh, Rob Rick Steiner. Uh, he was, uh, uh, very rough and very coarse around the edges. Uh, just come out of Vern's school or training for Vern and Vern got him into cowboy cause Vern and cowboy were buddies, former business partners, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, but when Scott came in, there was where the heads turned a little bit, just a different look. And it was a look that was seemingly more marketable at that time. Rick Steiner, Rob Rick Steiner had a more throwback, a classic, uh, Dick, the bruiser, kind of a crusher, uh, you know, uh, mad dog, Vashon type, you know, a little bit different, different bent. So uh, but Scott was, uh, Scott was it at that point. I, I thought Scott was going to be really. And he was, he gave him a huge star, made a lot of money. Uh, but I thought he was the guy. You always look at these teams, even their brother teams. I, I say this all the time. Teams are b- built to spin off. Factions are built to spin off. You never book a faction together and you're going to keep them there forever. You hope somebody's going to break out of there and become a bigger star than the, than the unit. And I think that's what we thought about both those guys, Scott and, uh, and Rick, you know, that Scott even had a little more upside maybe. Both of them were going to be stars, and we thought we had the ability to pull off the fact that when they were ready, and it's up to them totally, when they were ready to go their single ways or, or spend more time doing other things other than wrestling, because I know Rick Steiner became a very successful real estate guy down in, uh, in near the Atlanta area and, and uh, has been very successful. So, uh, yeah, I thought Scotty was the guy, but I sure as hell wouldn't want to that to come between him and, and Rick. I want them to be happy and they want them to be uh, both on the team, two valuable men, not to have a, they, that tag team division. Uh, did you notice the top tens we had on the show? Yeah. What a great idea. I mean, I, 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 I've always been a proponent of that. I had him in the mid South, uh, got only to agree to it because I finally convinced him and Tony, I think had to be handing that as well. Uh, I think maybe Tony and I put the damn list together. No, I'm thinking about it. I think we probably did. Uh, but it creates, it creates matchups for television, especially that when teams are ranked, it gives, there's an automatic reason for the match. The stakes. Yeah. Something's yeah. Something to the stake. The number three ranked team in AEW is going to take on the number seven ranked team tonight. Will they trade places next week? What you know, whatever. So there's a reason for the match and there's a backstory that's automatic and it's believable. And it's under terms that we all believe and accept as a rule. So, uh, those top tens, I thought were very good. And look, Stan, Tony's tells Stan Hansen, he's number six in the rankings. And Hansen uh, goes off and cuts a crazy yeah. promo, but I've never been number six in anything. It's great stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and we're as sports fans, a lot of us are wrestling fans and sports fans standings and ratings are symbolic to our sport yeah. and accepted terms. You brought up Stan Hansen. He's in our next match and, um, yeah, he's going to squash Tom Zink. Meltzer would say Hansen worked fast and stiff. It was fine. Giving the time limitation since it was all action. But for the life of me, if I had a guy who was under contract to earn 156 grand per year, like Zink is, who was a pretty decent worker. I would have at least made this a competitive match. Hanson obviously needed to get over in the end, but if he got a clean win, having a good match and winning would help him just as much and destroying Zink in this fashion, when he can mean a little in a tag team with Pillman and given his contract is about to start throwing $3,000 a week into a furnace. And, uh, he gives it one star. So it's a lariat finish is three minutes and 18 seconds. I gotta say, it's kind of hard to argue that because it does feel like you could have, you know, if you know, you've got money invested in Tom Zink, why don't we have Tom Zink wrestle, you know, rotunda earlier or something and, uh, throw buddy Landell in here for, I don't know. What, what do you think of this match and the decision to essentially just smash Tom Zink in three minutes? The, uh, Ole had fallen out of love with Tom Zink as a single. Mm. And, uh, so his value, uh, was, uh, perceived as much less by the booker who, by the way, did not sign Zink to that contract. He inherited these contracts. Cause I've heard this chapter and verse, you know, how could they, how could you guys be so stupid? Pay this guy, this, I wouldn't even have him here, blah, blah, blah. Well, and so we get a lot of that rhetoric, lots over and over how stupid everybody else is. So, uh. Uh, but you're right about the choice of the booking. If you got a guy that uh, is making that kind of money, uh, you know, you should at least build it up. I do not agree with, with Meltzer, uh, for, about the competitiveness of the deal. How does he know that we didn't, that wasn't how it was laid out to be. Right. He does. He doesn't. And secondly, uh, I wanted, and of course we were all corner. A lot of guys, there were really strong on bringing Stan in. And, uh, and I was really one of them and I, the great, it was a great choice. I wish we was hired him full time, quite frankly, we get one or two good years out of him right there. Well, that would have been amazing. Cause, cause can't now, can you imagine him having the, the series he could have with Sting? Oh yeah. Jesus. And you tell Stan, Stan, here's what we want. Here's what you're getting paid. We want this done. And here's a little, a little bit of extra cheese on your Whopper. Job well done. We want this son of Sting to come out looking like a million bucks, thanks to you. So you're going to put him through hell. You're going to make him fight. We're going to prove the world he's tougher than hell. He's so tough he just be Stan Hansen at some point in time. Stan's fine with that deal. We never never got there to it. Uh, so I, I uh, let me circle back to the Ole talk because you said Ole had fallen out of love with Tom Sink as a singles worker. Why is that? He wasn't impressed with the look. He wasn't impressed with the work. Well, he didn't like the promos combination. Well, I think Tom's look was great. Uh, I just thought his work, I think only thought his work was a little transparent and not physical enough. Not, you know, he was more finesse guy and a spot guy, not a psychology guy. Uh, maybe sometimes only thought he worked too fast, but there's just something that didn't click with him. It's like, you know, the personality thing. So, uh, crazy shit, man. So, but he was, he was, uh, uh, Tony is good, a good hand. You know, I, I, I he, 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 he could be a little moody, you know, could, could be a little temperamental 
And sometimes you're not over in the eyes of your decision maker, i.e. the booker, move being moody in a real smart move. And he didn't, he didn't click with Ole and that didn't get do Tom any favors, but I was did we did want Stan to go over strong cause he was going to be working with sting and maybe flair and Luger, all these guys, he was coming in to be a top heel and monster heels. Don't go home with their tail between their legs. They always, you, you don't beat the son of bitches until it's time. You just figure out a way to keep this story alive. And we didn't do that, uh, there. Uh, in a, in a good way. And I, I look back at this roster to show we had a lot of good talent. Oh yeah. A ton of good talent. And one of the other pieces of talent that was supposed to be in this match. I want to bring up here. Um, the rumor in innuendo was Paul Orndorff is supposed to be Stan Hansen's opponent here. And essentially the, the word is, and I need you to correct this true or false that Paul refused to put him over and wound up leaving the company as a result. What do you remember about Orndorff being in the Tom Zink spot here? I remember, uh, it was, it was discussed because it was kind of a marquee match, but I remember again, you know, uh, Paul Orndorff in that WCW run was not marketed, nor did he, uh, have the same, uh, feel that he had as Mr. Wonderful in WWF. Uh, you know, he had the arm, he had some surgery, arm, arm thing, and he had all that atrophy in one of his arms, uh, and, but he, we're kind of going on, on uh, reputation there. He could still put everybody's ass in the locker room probably, uh, you know, with one arm, but Paul, he was a tough dude, but he didn't want to put, uh, uh, put stand over. And I don't know if that was some issues from the past of those guys. I had no idea. But my sense of it is, is that Ole's presentation to Tom or to, uh, Paul Orndorff was not probably to Paul's liking. Sometimes Ole didn't communicate as, as smoothly as he needed to. And, or, and Orndorff is a tough bastard, as tough as Ole and stubborn and a veteran, and I ain't going to do it. And so there was that, they came to an impasse and, and there's one way to cut the budget, I guess. Let me ask but, you, did, did Ole ever try to like, uh, pardon my, my, my pitch here, but did he try to sell it? Is he like laying it out? Cause you know, a lot of times in wrestling guys or just anytime in business, if you've got something that you think is going to be less than ideal, like if you know that, I don't know how they're going to receive this. They try to, they try to really sell it. Like, oh man, we got a great idea. Here's what we're going to do. And there may be like, not the best idea, but then they'll tell them all the way through now. Now, next, here's what we got coming up after that. And that sort of makes up for whatever the bad thing is. Or do you think Ole was just holding gruff and said, yeah, Stan's going to beat you with the Lariat in about four minutes. And, uh, then we're on Bingo. to pay-per-view bingo ladder. It was a matter of fact, uh, and, uh, it just matter of fact. And again, I don't know the backstory information on the relationship between Stan Hansen and Paul Orndorff, and there may be none. Right. by the way. Right. Uh, I think the culprit here was how it was presented to Paul by Ole and it offended him as a man and as a veteran, uh, to the point that he says, I'm just, okay, I'm not going to do it. And, uh, so then, uh, well, Tom Z got the short straw. So, and I guess, you know, at that point, if you know that, well, if you're Tom Zink, well, shit, the last guy who was supposed to have this spot and said he wasn't doing it, he's fucking fired. I'd like to keep my 156K. I think I'll do this. So, no negotiating there. But I assume that when Ole hears, hey, I'm not going to do it for Orndorff, um, 
Is there even any further discussion? Does he know he's fired or does he make it clear that not only am I not doing it? If that's what your creative is, I quit. I think the latter again, uh, I think there was no, con- there, he, he wasn't going to go for it. Right. So he said, no, it just keep getting pushed and pushed. Well, you know, it could cost your job that well, fine. I'll just quit. I ain't doing it. And that's kind of how a lot of those, those issues were, were, uh, were culminated. So no, I don't think there was any, I don't know if there was ever a plan to get uh, Paul back in the, in the hunt at that point. I, maybe there was, I can't remember, but, uh, it just was bad communication. We've had example after example in this part po- this podcast, this show today, uh, of, uh, time and time again, a bad communication, lack of respect, lack of product knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, that plagued WCW off and on for many, many years. Uh, next up Lex Luger defending the United States title against Ric Flair. And I guess we should mention that that probably sounds a little weird because Flair is always in the world title picture here in 1990, at least in storyline, Rick is explaining. He wants to win the U S title because he feels by doing so he'll be able to get that rematch with sting for the world championship because the number one contender has always been the United States champion. So, um, seeing him challenge for the U S belt may be uh, something a little different. Of course, we know that before he was the world champ, he had several runs as the U S champ and he's going to win it again in 1996. But this is behind the scenes, probably the era where Rick is feeling a little bit of on again, off again, pressure with the front office, specifically with Jim Hurd. There's been lots of rumor and innuendo over the years that they wanted him to cut his hair and he had the little Dutch boy haircut and call himself Spartacus and put an earring in and <laughs> where was, uh, where was flair in all of this in, in September of 1990, one step away from insanity, but two steps away from being committed, you know, it's, it was so ridiculous. And, and if it was coming from somebody in another department, when it's coming from your boss who has this misguided notion that you need to a makeover, a total makeover with an earring and and be named Spartacus. It wasn't like a Spartacus like look, like Spartacus like. Right. No, 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 no. The nature boy is going to be gone. Spartacus is going to be here. And I, I, I was dreading this, the my minuscule possibility that that could have happened because I could not see nor hear myself calling Ric Flair anything but Ric Flair the nature boy. Nature. Uh, and not Spartacus. It was an embarrassment. That'd be like, you know, that'd be like saying, okay, Tom Brady, here's the deal, man. I want you to dye your hair because on Sunday you're playing wide receiver. No, no, I know you've been a quarterback. You're a pretty good quarterback too, but I want the hair blonde and I want you to play wide receiver. Just a converse of flair you know, I'm not so sure heard one have his hair black or something. That uh, little haircut was one thing, but I'm not so sure that Heard even had a, had a thought one time, I think, to uh, have Rick uh, color his hair. So it was it was this it was so insane, so ridiculous that some of these stories I know for you folks out there are hard to believe. I get it, I understand, and they're hard for me to believe too. And I was there, so we're all crazy. We're all, we're all confused all these years later. I still don't understand why we did some of the shit we did. 
uh, the, our leadership told us that's what you wanted. And then as a hired hand, man, you go out and do your job. We should mention that, uh, the match goes 14 minutes, 28 seconds. It gets three and three quarter stars. And Meltzer would say there was more heat in the ring entrances here than in the rest of the card combined. After watching eight subpar matches on a card build as a major event, the reaction in Nashville to this match before it ever started was amazing. They were ready to pop for even a decent match. And this was a lot better than decent. Actually, it was a typical flair Luger match, just an abridged version for TV, but the heat made it seem almost like match of the year, which it wasn't. You could literally see the spots coming a mile away, but all great action. Nonetheless, it was funny because it seemed Jim Ross and really all the announcers, even Missy Hyatt. We're trying to put over flair as the greatest of all time to the point. He pretty well overshadowed everyone else on the card. They made a 15 minute call at 10 minutes. Why lie when the lie doesn't benefit you all the typical stuff before the climax of the match, Hanson ran in and beat on Luger for the DQ, leaving him laying and spitting tobacco juice all over him while flair disappeared into thin air, which made no sense whatsoever. It was so weird to see them spend so much time trying to get flair over and then work a finish that made him seem like nothing more than a bit player. Okay. There's two different things there, Conrad. There's two different things about this whole thing. Well, they tried to put Flair over then They let him. Here's the deal. They had had shit to do with the commentary. Keith Mitchell was our producer. He always let me work just like he does now in AEW. And sometimes for our company, that's for better or for worse with me. I get that. Uh, so we were Bob Cottle and I were putting Flair over as we always did as we should. Because he's going to, you know, he's, he's the number one, he's a, he's a former world champion. He's become the number one contender. If he wins this match, he's a legend. We ain't got many of them on his team here. Legend guys. So yeah, you're going to take care of that commodity. Secondly, the, the mechanics of the finish on they, whoever the fuck they are, uh, pronoun guys, uh, they, uh, booked that. That's how it was booked. Bob Cobb didn't have anything to do with that. It was how it was booked. And the, and, but Meltzer's right. It was a lousy way to get out of the segment, uh, where, you know, but Ole was hell bent, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on Hanson, which I had no problem with that either. But then he had the same basic idea. We did almost the same thing a few minutes later in the last match. Right. So it just, it was ill-conceived. Look at all the things we pointed out of why we do this. We shouldn't have done that. And. But it's just, it, it, it's, you can hear my voice. It's frustrating. Now you can only imagine. Thank God. I had not met Jan yet. Uh, to any, we were together. We were seeing each other, but you know, I, I, I cause she would have run my ass off the mood. I was, I was never in a good mood. Uh, you know, I saw, I read somewhere with Wade Keller said they, I don't know, but AEW, uh, thing Jar has been sounding, uh, cranky. I, I think that's a cool PC word to say he's an old bastard with a short fuse, uh, cranky. I'm a competitive bastard and I want us to, I know the difference in right and wrong on promoting a wrestling show or broadcasting a wrestling show. I think if I don't, then I need to stay here at home. That's all. But I don't, I'm not staying at home by the way, but man, I, it's just frustrating as hell because you know, it, just he only didn't care. He didn't care. And the. And the head guy didn't have enough product knowledge to see that Ole didn't care. And I got to promise you, if you ask Tony about this or Arn Anderson, who you, you know, you're one of your guys, the great Arn Anderson, uh, they'll tell you the same thing. He let, didn't give a shit. Let me ask you specifically about them announcing the time. That's incorrect. That was, that, that was, yeah, that came from the truck. 
You think Bob Cottle and I are sitting there with a little stopwatches on and we're going to call out the time? No. We didn't lie about it. We may have been misinformed. No, no, it wasn't you. It was the ring announcer. I guess that's my point is who's getting it down to, you know, whether it's Penzer or Gary, Michael Capetta, or you guys have had different announcers mm-hmm. over the time. I think here it's GMC, but you're, you're going to announce 10 minutes gone by 10 minutes gone by whatever. And it's only been five minutes. He, Who, he may have got, uh, well, he normally gets his cues in the truck, right? And somebody in the truck has got a stopwatch on it. And if there was an issue on time, uh, you know, go, running short on the two and a half hour, two and a half hour window, uh, somebody, they may have tried to cheat a little bit there, but I'm with Dave. There's no reason to lie about it because it's not going to, it's not going to draw anyway. It's not even getting anywhere near the time limit. So why should it matter? So that's, that's how I see that. But I understand it's, if you're going to do time limits and like we do in AEW and hardly nobody else is doing them because they still like their showbiz presentation by having a time limit, you have another finish. you can utilize, it's called a draw and, uh, but it's the time should be real, not worked. Well, what is a work is the uh, idea that they got us all to tune in and set records for our main event. Sting and the fake black scorpion. That's right. It's not the real black scorpion. They're going to go eight minutes and 10 seconds. And Meltzer would say bad match for a lot of reasons. First off, the match was supposed to be a start to finish brawl, but Perez isn't a good brawler. Second Perez was told to disguise his ring style. So his identity wouldn't be known, but his ring style isn't well enough to begin with well known enough to begin with to where it would have made a difference. And he's not versatile enough yet to change it up and still put together a good match. I'd been told ahead of time it would be Perez when watching the match. I actually believed they'd found some other muscular guy with maybe one year's experience because nothing happened. He said Sting came off far below the level of Flair and Luger, which isn't good for the guy you're supposed to be building everything around since the heat was nowhere close to the prior match. In the end, Sting wins with a clothesline into the buckle and a pin. And at that point, a second Black Scorpion, which is the Angel of Death, Dave Sheldon, came up on the aisle and we were told that. Sheldon was the real scorpion. And this was all mind games while nobody could understand how Ross would immediately know the other guy's the real scorpion and how the first guy's a fake one has to realize that pro wrestling has what we call poetic license and that angles <laughs> don't have to make even a little bit of sense or, or JR screwed up. Uh, you know, that's one thing I, the guy that was on the, on the stage looked like the black scorpion sounded. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. that tickled me, but he looks like what that guy sounds like. That's a yeah, great answer. Yeah, the mystery man. He looks like a mystery man to me, kids. Uh, I may have screwed up. Uh, I may have screwed up. We we talked about that the other day when uh, here comes Arn Anderson and the our our all out, and uh, some of us are proclaiming he's here to help Cody. I didn't know that. How do we know that he might've been there to help Tully, right? Maybe he wanted a piece of uh, Cody after all those years feuding with the Rhodes, Rhodes clan, but we didn't say that we, I, we got it right, but it was, it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been positioned the other way. And I think I screwed that up in this clash. I, that's what I'm thinking, or maybe that was the plan all along that, you know, this has got somebody could have said, uh, this has got to be the guy. This is, this has got to be the black scorpion. And I may have not worded it correctly, but it could have just been my human error. So of course, at the end of the match, he's going to unmask the black scorpion. And there's of course another mask. And that's when we realize, wait a minute, there's another black scorpion on the ramp. And so we're going to keep this thing going. This is not the payoff that everybody thought it was that drew 
is huge television rating. The most watched match in cable history up to this point. And Meltzer would say the angle was too similar to Luger Hansen just 15 minutes earlier and looked like, uh, on TV, it was a desperation angle with no direction. He gave it one star and we should mention that when sting is doing an interview in the middle of the ring, Sid vicious is going to come out and, uh, beat up Sting and spit on him. And of course we're doing this to set up Halloween havoc, 1990, where Sid as a member of the horseman is going to get a title shot against Sting, sort of in that same monster factory again. Mm-hmm. And on the August 25th edition of WCW Saturday night, like, uh, what, 10 days prior to this, that's where we first see the black scorpion. And after the clash sting and the scorpion are going to wrestle the house show loop pretty much every night, uh, in October of 90 at the Omni, the black scorpion is going to defeat Brian Pillman. But after that, he's losing to sting on all the house shows. And of course, losing to Pillman and Z man along the way. And then the big payoff Starcade 90, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. They're looking for somebody to be under this hood and to be the black scorpion. And of all people, it winds up being Ric Flair in hindsight. You know, you've kicked around some ideas today about who it could have been. You think Terry Taylor is probably the best name that it could have been, or is there another name that maybe we've slept on today? Uh, well, I just look at this card. Those names popped out at me a little bit, you know, that could have been, you want somebody Conrad that can give sting the best match that you can give them. The black scorpion to me was created to help get sting over more. Right. And so I'm not worried about the other guy and, but Terry Taylor could have been rebranded with that whole scenario, uh, for example, and he would have always given a great match no matter what. And he, I think he kind of wanted to be a heel anyway. He seemed like he always had that little desire to be a heel and he had been a heel there before. Uh, I remember he was with, uh, Alexa York's group who became, uh, uh, you know, Terry Runnels or she, yeah, she was, she was Terry then, but uh, you know, you got, you got what I'm saying, but yeah. anyway, he, he could have done, he could have done that. Uh, but we, we just did a real lousy job and I say we, because we're all there, but the company did a bad job of getting Sting's opponents ready for him. And it wasn't like the shells were completely, uh, barren. It just goes back to say, Ole was forced to write to the angle. He didn't want to do the black. He, he come up the black scorpion in spite with tongue in cheek, but nobody got that because Tony and I have talked to him about this. As I said earlier, he didn't even know who, what the, what the, how, how he was going to blow off, uh, the, the whole thing and night and with flair was that in St. Louis. Yeah, that's right. At the keel. That was a big deal for me, man. And I remember us also that we had a match there with Luger and, and, uh, Stan in a bull rope match that didn't really fare well with Olex on that one. I don't blame you on that because Stan beat the dog shit out of him with that rope, like a government mule, I'll guarantee you. And uh, Stan was so aggressive, so aggressive, but people that, that translated to something good. I promise you. Uh, so yeah, that was a, a good deal, but I remember all that week going into that week of the, of the, of the show on, on uh, in St. Louis, the pay-per-view, I, well, I can promise you nobody in the office knew what, who was going to be the black scorpion or who was going to go over nothing. That's so crazy to me. Uh-uh. It was a, yeah. Major pay-per-view. And, but it, it just shows you where we work. We, the, the, we, our decision makers were rudderless or didn't give a shit. 
And I'll tell you how this, Rick did, Rick was, Rick did a, as good a job. He was so de- dejected, I think. And I don't think he liked that whole thing. And why should he? But I know when it was over, you know, you, you've met, you've talked to my friend, Dennis Brent down in Dallas. Uh, Dennis was the head of the magazines there and worked for us in Atlanta too. He and his wife, Lynn, uh, great people They live in Carrollton. Uh, Dennis has got MS, but he's got one of the greatest ex- collections of memorabilia and flair gave Dennis Brent the black scorpion mask from uh, that night. That's where, that's where it resides at this point in time. Pretty cool stuff. But, uh, Rick was happy to get rid of it. It wasn't like he wanted to keep it for a souvenir. I think, uh, you know, so Dennis got kind of casually asking, are you going to, you want to keep your mask? You want to take the mask for you? And I think Nick Rich said something to the effect of you can take it. You can have it. I don't ever want to see it again type thing. So it was just a, it was funny how it was still talked about. I think we, we, we had a nice little review of it today, but it was just, uh, it was so many mixed bags and it's such an emotional show to pull off Conrad. It's just. It just, again, right. This is the first show that we've done. I mean, every show has got emotions and different things. Of course, the old show was a whole, in a whole different stratosphere for, for me and for you. But this one is just so goddamn frustrating for me to talk, go back and talk about because so many things were screwed up. It's absolutely unnecessary. Absolutely unnecessary. Well, what is but necessary it, is that you follow us on Twitter. If you haven't already, it's at jr grillin that's at jr grillin and we took to twitter this week and said hey you got a question about clash 12 if so just reply to this tweet and we'll be doing this next week as well so if you haven't already throw us a follow right now at jr grilling jim i'm gonna hit you with some rapid fire ones are you ready ready baby ready baby. Uh, bad money slim wants to know uh stan hansen took care of z-man in about three minutes during this show with that being said what was your favorite z-man match Oh God. I think probably my favorite matches that Tom was involved in were when he, when he was partners with the Pillman. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't, he didn't, he never with his look and his, he had a great look, good looking guy. Women loved him. Athletic. He, he was a little soft at times in his presentation in the ring, but his best work to me was with Pillman. Jay Ahola says Jim said on the rise and fall of WCW DVD that Jim heard had off the record conversations with Hogan, Savage, etc., about coming to WCW Were any of those conversations around this time period. I have no idea, but if the, the conversations, uh, were probably, uh, if I recall, uh, her w, WCW heard, etc. at all. And, uh, with Hogan and or Savage's representatives. You're always, you know, they, at least they, they tested the waters to see if there's any interest there and what it would cost to get those guys under in, in the fold. But at that time in that era, uh, it just never was really close to happening. Craig wants to know, Jim, will you ever return to the UK for a live show with Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Hell yeah. We're talking uh, dates in January right now, uh, London, Manchester and, and uh, Glasgow, uh, all written in pencil, but we're working on those dates, uh, Conrad and I to do a show over there, you know, with me going on, uh, being with AEW and doing a live show every Wednesday night, that means I got to leave from where we're doing TV on Thursday. And then Conrad and I would do shows on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. Then I'd fly back on Monday. So I'd be back for the Tuesday production meeting. Uh, but you're damn right. I, that's a great market for us. Uh, people are fans are great. They're, they're learned. They ask great questions. 
and they support us. So we hope that we get that pulled together. You can bet your ass if we do, uh, we'll, we'll be promoting it, uh, thoroughly right here on the show. Stay classy. C-Town wants to know, was Missy Hyatt that hot in person? Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> doubt. She's still, she's still hot. Uh, uh but yeah, that was a funny deal. Cause she had brown hair in that thing. Yeah. I, I assume that's a wig, but I don't know. I probably is. Uh, everything else seems to be fake. Uh, okay. JB 74 wants to know who had the best mullet in WCW. <laughs> God damn. That was the, that's, that could be a, 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 a triple knockout to finish line. It could be a lot of guys. Oh, Brian Pillman had a good mullet. Brad Armstrong Think? had a killer mullet. Oh, Brad Armstrong had the, he may had the, he may had the most definitive mullet of the group, Yeah, but mullets were just a thing that was, everybody had a mullet. What, what was that? was saying. Party in the something in the front, party yeah, in the business back. Business in the front, party in the back. There you go. <laughs> uh, lots of questions about like Dave Gray's here. Jim, can you recite the winning poem from the Burger King Ringmaster contest? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I can't. But I have, uh, but I have had a whopper too in my time. It's unbelievable that that was actually a real thing. Um, let's uh, let's tell everybody. Think, think about it. Your your creative. Your, your company yeah, thinks that wrestling fans are really in the poetry poets. Yeah. I mean, where are we here? What are you guys smoking? Give me some. Yeah. I mean, here's the deal. Shout out to the guys who sold a Burger King sponsorship. I mean, that's a big deal for you guys, but, yep. uh, holy cow, maybe, <laughs> maybe not poetry. But we're excited to bring you some poetry next week. We're going to be covering In Your House 10 Mind Games, one of my very favorite shows that we'll cover September 26, 19, or sorry, September 22nd, 1996. We're not doing it as a watch along, but by God, get ahead of the curve and go watch this main event right now. It's Shawn Michaels having a breakout performance against Mankind. Mankind had been feuding with The Undertaker for a bit here. But in my opinion, this really showed how versatile he was and really leveled him up. The world titles on the line. They're going to go 26 minutes in a match. You've never seen Sean in, uh, it's a much different style for him. A great opponent for Sean, uh, high marks across the board for me. Can't recommend it enough. The undercard, a final curtain match with gold dust and the undertaker, Jerry Lawler, finally going to get his comeuppance with Mark Henry. Owen Hart and the British Bulldog taking on the smoking guns. Of course, Sonny's hanging around with the tag team titles for that. Jim Cornette is in there with Jose Lothario. That ought to be a five-star classic. Uh, and then we've got <laughs> Savio Vega with Justin Hawk Bradshaw, the Caribbean strap match. And of course, I think a lot of people remember this because ECW with Sandman and I believe Tommy dreamer and Paul Heyman, they're all seated front row. So lots of shenanigans that are happening. We'll talk about what was planned, what wasn't planned. But the main event, it's really something special, isn't it, Jim? Oh, absolutely. We saw a different side of both Sean and Mick. Uh, Mick showed great versatility and athleticism that he, heretofore he had not been known for. The drama, yes. The violence, yes. The blood, the guts. But the psychology sometimes, might, in some people's eyes, might have been lacking. This match had great ring psychology. It showed Mick could was a, was a much better athlete than, uh, than people give him credit for being at the same time, it took Shawn Michaels again, a step away from being a, what some would think a one dimensional, like, uh, finesse guy, 
high spot guy, drop kicks, this nip up, blah, blah, blah. But it showed he could fight and he could, he could stand toe to toe and fight a bigger man. Mick was 300 pounds. So it was a really a good matchup. I thought one of the best stories that I had a privilege of calling, uh, in my run in WWE, the entire run was Shawn Michaels and Mick Foley, uh, in, at this, uh, in your house, mind games event. And if you folks go back and watch it on the WWE network, we're having to send them some business, uh, that, uh, we will, you'll, you'll understand what we're saying here, how good that was. Conrad's right. One of the best main events on any pay-per-view ever in the company. I mean, for my money, it's the best match in the WWF that year. I mean, there were lots of other great matches. Uh, two months later, you get Bret Hart and Steve Austin at survivor series and on his way out, uh, Kevin Nash had a tremendous match with Shawn Michaels. I think most people would probably point to the WrestleMania 12 main event, but for my money, Shawn Michaels and mankind best match in the company in 1996, go out of your way to watch it. We'll break it down in long form next week, right here on grilling Jr. with the voice of wrestling. Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.